0: Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thanks, Isaac, for the Bible reading. Uh, Please keep your Bibles open to Exodus chapters 1 and 2. We will be looking at both chapters, even though the Bible reading was on chapter 1. Before we begin, how about I pray? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Um, As we kick off this series in Exodus, Father, we just ask that uh, you would uh, be with us, that you would guide us by your spirit throughout this series. Again, with this book that is so familiar uh, to many of us, help us to really allow your word to sink deep, to have us see your word in a new light, that we might continue growing as we hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Who here loves a good romance story or movie? Yes, Grace, anyone else? Yes, Jeannie, only two people. Well, you guys are going to love Exodus uh, because uh, I'm going to propose that Exodus is a romance story. And for those of you who don't like romance stories, that's fine. This is God's word. You still need to pay attention. Uh, But the thing is, uh, it might sound a bit cheesy, right? It's a romance story. But what am I talking about? Well, It's a love story between God and Israel, his people, right? We have this lovely meeting between two people. Uh, The would-be groom comes in and and swoops in to save the bride in dramatic um, detail. Uh, There's a wedding ceremony on a mountain of all places. There's an exchange of vows, exchange of promises, And then there's drama. There's a dramatic betrayal on the wedding night. And then there's a restoration of the relationship. Uh, And so by the end, the lovers are living happily ever after. Big asterisk, right? (laughs) But the thing is, you know, even if I sort of put the book of Exodus in this fashion, why might that be helpful for us to read it like that? Well, I think partly... Uh, like all relationships, when things get rough, right, when, when the passion is no longer there and it starts to get a little bit rough, when doubt starts to creep in, well, it's always helpful to look back at the beginning of the relationship, isn't it? Who was this person that we fell in love with? What was the character of that person who rescued us? It's not a perfect parallel, Uh, But it can be a helpful one for us even today, right? Who is this God that we are serving, that we are coming to worship with all our lives? What keeps us going when it's hard to keep serving our God, right? Throughout the Old Testament, God keeps pointing His people back to this story, the book of Exodus, this new beginning between God and His people. And for us, we also need to keep remembering. We need to keep re-seeing who our God is, this God that we serve. Okay, but before we begin with chapter 1 of our passage, let's super briefly run through some key events of the book that came before it, the book of Genesis, right? God created the world, chapters one and 1 to 2, and appointed people, that's all of us, image bearers, to look after the world. But the important thing here is it was good. Creation was good. But humanity rejected God's rule, right? And ever since, creation has gone into this downward spiral of sin that just keeps escalating, keeps degenerating, violence and curse, violence and curse. But out of all this mess, God steps in. God calls Abraham or Abram to make a great nation out of his descendants. And so we trace the line of Abraham to his son Isaac, to his son Jacob, and then eventually to Jacob's 12 sons, culminating in this big family of Jacob resettling in the land of Egypt, right? Where they escape famine and live prosperously. That's the... Really far off bird's eye view of Genesis. But right off the bat in Exodus, we see that we see these events being referred to straight away. The 12 sons of Egypt, sorry, the 12 sons of Israel that we just talked about, well, they all died out, but they multiplied greatly. They were exceedingly fruitful. So far, so good, right? God's plan is going exactly as you expect, but not for long. A new king steps onto the scene, and he's not so keen on Israel growing so quickly. And so, in order to sort of limit their growth, he starts to oppose them with forced labor. But the more Pharaoh tries to oppress them, the more they flourish. It keeps backfiring, right? The more they multiply. And so, he even orders the midwives to kill the Hebrew boys just as they're born, but Because the midwives fear God, even they end up being blessed. You know, these midwives, they're the the nobodies of the day. Now, I'm sure that those of us in our life groups would have heard me say so many times now, but whenever we read the New Testament, we need to realize that the New Testament isn't given to us in a vacuum, right? The authors are always, always drawing upon other parts of Scriptures, right, particularly the Old Testament, to link What they're saying to the Old Testament to make a point. And so, of course, that's the case in Exodus, right? It's the second book of the Bible, but we can see all these links already to Genesis. Uh, So, how about an exercise for everyone here? Just skim through chapters one, chapter one of Exodus again, and can you just shout out what references, what reminders to the book of Genesis, particularly the promises of Genesis, might we see here? Anyone? Maybe I'll give you guys a moment to quickly skim through chapter 1. Multiplying. Multiplying? Yep, and in particular, which part of Genesis was that referencing? The promise, to the promise to Abraham, yep. Absolutely, so promise to Abraham. And there's bonus bonus points. Exceedingly fruitful. Where, where do we see that sort of a multiply what kind of reference is that to? Yes, Genesis 15, so as numerous as the stars, yes. But I'm thinking about the that, that that's correct and and that is that's definitely one thing that is really obvious here. So good work Grace. But the wording be exceedingly fruitful. Adam and Eve, yeah, so God's immediate first blessing to his people is like go and and multiply, be fruitful and fill the earth. And we we get that in Exodus one, don't we? They filled Egypt, (laughs) right? It's like God it's happening, guys. It's happening. Yep, anything else? What about the, the fact that Pharaoh's plans are constantly being frustrated? The more he oppresses them, the more they multiply. Do we sort of get a hint of that anywhere in the promises of God? Say Genesis 12 somewhere. First part of Genesis 12. First three verses maybe. Those who curse you Yeah, so God promises to Abraham that those who curse you, I will curse them, right? He will frustrate their plans. So, uh, also Genesis 15, so uh, Grace mentioned that there'll be more numerous than the stars that he could count, but then what happens in Genesis 15 verse 13? Does God warn them of something that will happen? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So God warns Abraham, so this is like many generations before they even step into Egypt itself, that they will be oppressed in a foreign land. But then after 400 years, they will be rescued by God. Okay, so what does all that mean? As we read chapter 1, it seems like God's people are in a bit of a pickle, aren't they? you wouldn't want to be in their situation what does this tell us well hopefully as we look at all this we can see that this is actually exactly as god planned right even as pharaoh tries to do all he can to stop god's people from growing well in doing so he's actually pushing along god's plan that he said his people will suffer in the land for 400 years right no matter how many times humanity kingdoms, kings, try to oppose God, to undermine God's plans, these plans will always backfire, right? God's promises will always go exactly as He wanted. So it's not even like, as we come to Exodus chapter 1, it's not even like, oh, we've hit a road bump. But this is exactly what God intended all along, hundreds of years before. Uh, but there's a really nice snippet here that I just want to put, spend some time on, uh, and that is the story of Shipra and Puah, right? the two Hebrew midwives um, that are named here in the story. Uh, now, a couple of weeks ago, we heard uh, from Paul that we ought to submit to our governing authorities. We Remember that, right? And we made a dis- distinction that Paul tells us to submit but not blindly obey everything the government tells us. Uh, and so in this story, we, we see that put into practice, don't we? Right Against the might of the king of Egypt, uh, against the oppression of their slave masters, these two midwives choose the side of God, God's plans, God's promises over the demands of the human king. And their example is actually one that we should take, isn't it? Right When things are so clearly demanded of us by those in power, those uh, around us by our government, our society, uh, things that are so clearly in opposition to God's word, then that ought to make us stand up to do what is right in God's eyes rather than the world's eyes, isn't it? Uh, Particularly when it comes to demarginize the oppressed, uh, when injustice comes to those around us. The question is, will we be people who make a stand for them? Will we defy social norms and expectations of our days to reach out to them in the name of Jesus? I love how in this passage, do you notice there's only two people who are named in the story? And that's Shipra and Puah, right? Not even Pharaoh, because Pharaoh is just a title. He's just the king of Egypt. Pharaoh is not a name. So to God, he's just another king. Another king out of many on the earth, right? But these two Hebrew midwives, probably as insignificant as you can get, their names are remembered for millennia because they boldly stood up for God. But anyway, back to the the larger story. Uh, Now we move away from the bigger context of the story and we zoom in, right? We zoom in on a particular birth of a baby boy. We read that both parents are Levites. Right, the mother tries to hide the child so that he won't be killed. But you know, as the baby grows older, maybe he's making more noise. Maybe there's just like more commotion going on in the house. It's no longer possible to hide this baby. And so, you, can you just imagine this picture? She puts her baby in a basket, uh, which coincidentally, or maybe not, is the same word used for Noah's ark. So she puts it in a little ark. Significance? I don't know. You can go home and do your research. Uh, and she hides this basket, this little ark, among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And all the while, Moses' sister is standing around seeing what might happen to the baby, her baby brother. All right, just think about this again. Now, if we spend any amount of time reading this, I'm sure our hearts just... <laughs> Oh, they, they just wrench for how hard it would be for a mum to leave her baby boy on the river bank like that. But then someone unexpected turns up. Because of all people, Pharaoh's own daughter goes down to the Nile to bathe. Right? The princess. She sees a basket and then opening up the basket in curiosity, she sees the baby crying and feels sorry for the baby. And now Moses' sister jumps into action. Having seen all this happen, she goes up to Pharaoh's daughter and asks innocently, Oh, you feel sorry for her. Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to take care of this baby for you? Just think about that. A slave girl, right? That's what the Hebrews were to the Egyptians. Uh, They were beneath them. They were a threat to them. And now this slave girl goes right up to Pharaoh's own daughter right, the princess, to ask her this question, what, what do you think should happen next? Not what we read, right? Pharaoh's daughter goes, yeah, okay, uh, that's, that's weird, but it gets even more weird because Moses' sister gets who? <laughs> she gets Moses' mom, right, the mom of the baby, to take care of her own baby that she was supposed to kill. And more than that, Pharaoh uh, offers to pay money to Moses' mom to look after her own baby. Can you see how ironic that is, right? This baby that she was ordered to kill, now she's getting paid to nurse her own baby. But then there's more. (laughs) Because not only does this boy survive, not only does a mom get, get paid for looking after her own baby when the boy grows a little bit older pharaoh's daughter takes the boy in into her own family now you might think oh that's a pretty harsh thing you know she's losing her baby boy again but can you fill in the gaps of what's going to happen here because what would have happened if moses grew up normally he would have been a slave <laughs> doing nothing but manual labor, being abused, being beaten by Egyptian slave masters. But now, Moses gets to enjoy luxury. He gets opportunities. He gets education. He gets the best food of the royal palace, right? Leisure. There was no weekends for slaves. How's that for a bit of irony? So after we zoom in on the story of this one baby, we see the very same principle at work that we saw in the zoomed out view. Pharaoh can do and say as much as he wants, as many decrees and commands as he wants, but ultimately, God's blessings will remain on his people. Now, let's just think about this introduction to Moses that we've just read. You know you know me by now that I, I love movies, right? So if you think about this as a movie, if, if we were reading this for the first time and we were introduced to this massive crisis, Facing all of God's people, they're on the brink of destruction, and then suddenly we see the birth of a baby, right? The extraordinary ways that this baby was saved from death to now being raised in the royal family. If this was a movie, what are we going to expect out of this Moses person? What do you guys think? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Is he just going to be a supporting actor on the side somewhere? No? He's going to be the hero. He's going to save the day, isn't he? Right? Miraculous birth. Well, let's look at what happens in the very next scene. We fast forward whoop, to a few uh, decades in advance, in the future. And now Moses has all grown up. And what is the very first act that we read about? Well, he goes to where his own people were. It's like he suddenly realizes what's happening to his own people. He watches them. He sees their hard labor. He probably sees them being abused, being beaten by the Egyptians. And then we zoom in again. He sees one particular Egyptian beating a Hebrew, his own people, right? What does Moses do? Well, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. So what do you think, guys? Is this, is this the hero that's going to save the day? What do you reckon? Is this the hero that we've waited 400 years for? So, so let's think about this. Is, is this a good sign or a bad sign that this is the hero? What do you guys think? What, what's, a, what, what's the pros and cons here? Give me a character assessment of Moses. <laughs> or... Sorry? English class, sure. Go for it. <laughs> he's sneaky, yeah. He's not like, makes a big monologue. I have come to save God's people. But he's like sneaking around, looking here and there, making sure no one's there, and then he hides. Yeah, anything else? He's impulsive, yeah, sure, right? Okay, so he just acts on an impulse like straight away. Okay, anything else? Does he have good motives? Tricky question. Who says yes? Who says no? No one? Yes, in a bad way. Yes, in a bad way. Okay, so he's got concern for his people. So would you even say he has concern for his people? Is that, is that a good thing, right? He sees the oppressed, and he's like, that's not good, right? So, so you know, we have the benefit of living on this side of the Ten Commandments. He says, do not murder. We have the benefit of living on this side of the cross, where Jesus says, love your enemies, right? So we can judge his methods, but maybe on, on, on beneath the surface, he's maybe got good intentions, just not how the method of how to carry out those intentions. Okay? Uh, well, let, let's, let's keep reading. Uh, because this is actually confirmed for us on the very next day. So the Moses sees two Hebrews fighting this time, right? That's his own countrymen. And he says, this is such a wrong picture, right? It's, isn't it bad enough that the Egyptians are beating you? Now you're fighting against within each other? Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew, he says to the man in the wrong, right? But the man in the wrong says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian, right? I like the nice bit of foreshadowing going on here for those who know what's going to come. Uh, But at this moment, Moses hears this and he's afraid for his life, right? If this little Hebrew guy knew what I had done, then maybe I wasn't very good at hiding. Maybe I didn't look very carefully when I was looking around to make sure no one was there. right? Surely others must know what happened. And sure enough, Pharaoh does hear of it and tries to kill Moses. And so this would-be saviour of the Israelite people flees from Egypt. He runs away, right? And then we get this story. You can read it, uh, but we're going to fly through it. He rescues some women um, of a priest in Midian, Uh, the priest welcomes Moses, gives his daughter Zipporah to him in marriage, Uh, Moses has a son through Zipporah, Uh, but this event that should have been so happy for Moses, like the birth of his firstborn son, is tainted with sadness because Moses names the baby Gershom, which sounds like the word for foreigner in Hebrew. Moses looks at his son, instead of joy, instead of happiness, he considers his own situation and says, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And so as the the curtain closes on the scene, it it looks that, well, that's it, right? This Moses who we were like, this is it. This is the guy who will rescue all of God's people who had a passion a desire, and of all places, whoever was qualified to rescue God's people, surely it's this guy, right? Raised in the royal family, best education, probably the most uh, nutritious upbringing, <laughs> right, if you can say that, right? All the food that he could want, maybe, and that this is how he ends up. Well, maybe we might find uh, Moses' example a bit relatable. <laughs> uh, because despite all of these credentials, despite Moses' desire to save his people, his efforts completely fall flat. Uh, have you ever experienced that before? Like, you've done everything you can. Everything, humanly speaking, right? All the pieces are in place. We're working towards a goal, but no matter how hard we try, we just keeps getting frustrated. Maybe work frustrations, family frustrations, maybe fruitlessness in ministry, uh, sharing the gospel with someone at, uh, at work. Maybe this passage remind us that maybe just like Moses, might we be focusing on the problem purely from a human perspective alone, and, and that's it. Because as we expect the curtain to close in disappointment, we find out that there's more to the story. Verses 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And so we have two contrasting scenes here. Because on the one hand, yes, Moses' human efforts have amounted to nothing. Yes, despite how promising things looked, God's people seem to be no closer to being rescued. But thankfully, there's another reality. God's plans, God's heart to rescue his oppressed people don't simply rest on human effort alone. Behind the scenes, we are reassured that even as Israel's suffering continues, God hears The groaning. God remembers his covenant. God remembers his promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looks on with concern and compassion towards his own people. Even if we hadn't read the book of Exodus before, we know that this isn't the end of the story, right? God's not done with his people yet. God's not done with Moses yet, no matter how bleak the outlook is for God's people. So let's think about what it means for us today, right? Because we can easily say, you know, we're not slaves in Egypt, right? We're not under the thumb of a king who's forcing us to do forced labor. We're not being told that we must kill our baby boys when they are born. And that's true. Uh, But I'm sure there are still other times in our lives where we might feel like everything's hopeless, Maybe we feel that God is not there. God is not listening. God is so far away that he doesn't care for us anymore. I mean, not long ago, a few of us probably felt really sick and tired of being sick, right? You know, one after another, the flu, COVID, rhinovirus, and all these other viruses that we never heard of until recently. They go through each member of the family one at a time. You know, as soon as one gets better, another gets sick, it just never seems to end, we look forward to finally coming to church as one big family again just for someone else to start coughing, right? We just want a day of no interruptions. Come on, how hard can it be? Just getting my work done without having to grab another tissue for my sick kid or, or juggling who's going to look after the kids while the other gets the groceries, right? Again, it's not slavery, but, you know, things like that can wear us down, can't it? Or maybe we're going through some sort of spiritual rut in our lives. We know all the right things we're supposed to believe, but we're not feeling it, right? We might wonder, what's wrong with my faith? Why am I not always really super motivated to pray, to read the scriptures for hours on end, right? And then the more we fail, the more we feel guilty and further away from God. Or maybe there's some sin in our lives that we can't overcome, You keep trying and trying, but you keep giving in. Maybe it's making you feel like God must be distant from you because of how much you're failing. Now again, I've shared this a number of times now. Uh, Excuse me if uh, you're you're sick of hearing this story, but a low point in my last few years of my life was my ongoing struggle with my patients, with my kids, uh, particularly Josh. Um, And I would keep asking God to help me be patient, right? I would read books on how to be calm and gentle. i watch parenting YouTube videos, and I've got this long list of to-dos to do. But then again and again, I just always end up shouting at Josh because he triggered me again. And in the midst of all that, I'll be asking myself, man, how, how, how can I be a pastor? How can I be serving you guys when I'm supposed to model grace? And patience, right? Not just to the church I love, but also in my relationship to my own family. And so maybe you've got something that you can relate to that you're just so frustrated with. You're trying so hard. Maybe something in the past. Perhaps you're feeling a bit hopeless right now. I don't know what your situation is. Or maybe God just seems so distant from you. Well, as we wrestle with questions like that, in these cases, our passage reminds us that we need to hold on to God's promises to us. We need to cling on to the fact that God's purposes will advance no matter how hard life gets, no matter how much of a failure things look like from our perspective. Now, just a couple of clarifications as I say that. First, it doesn't mean that we don't care about our failings, right? Uh, It's not like we just trust God and, well, don't worry about your sin. Uh, Don't care about your spiritual dryness. It doesn't mean we dismiss someone else's suffering or their trials that they're going through, right? Right? Um, again, particularly when it, when it goes to sin. like you, If I've got an issue with how I'm relating to my kids, I don't just trust God that it's all going to work out, but I, I need to try my best as I continue to wrestle, as I continue to trust God's promises. But secondly, what promises are we actually talking about, right? Is it like if we trust God, then God's going to fix all our problems? Well, remember what uh, Pastor Dave told us a couple of weeks ago, Right? We need to be clear about what promises God makes for us and what he doesn't make, right? Because God doesn't promise that if we follow Jesus, then our lives will be cruisy, we'll be free from all suffering, all pain. God doesn't promise us that we won't be one day oppressed and be treated like how the Israelites are treated in the story. But what has God promised us? God has promised us that a new creation is coming. One that there will be no more pain and suffering that we are going through right now. One that there will be no more wrestling with sin. We will be made perfect. We will be made holy. Remember what we heard from Romans in the letter to to the Romans uh, by Paul? Though even as we are suffering now, we rejoice because that suffering can't compare to the glory that awaits us on the last day. But even so, Right, even if that full reward is coming one day, even as we go through suffering right now, suffering that God has not promised will take away for us in all situations for all of us, God promises that He will be with us as we live for Him. Right? Remember the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight. God doesn't just Jesus doesn't send us out, but Jesus promises that as we live for Him, as we serve Him. As we face persecution and judgment, judgment, oppression, He will always be with us. And so sometimes we just need to wait for God's promises to be worked out by God. Sometimes it's a reminder for us that instead of doing things purely from a human perspective, we need to turn to God for help, to trust God's timing, even as we continue to work hard in the name of Jesus. And so, trusting in this God, that's what we're going to be looking at for the rest of this series in Exodus. Because in order for us to trust God, we need to know who He is, right? In this romance novel, we're really going to get to the bottom of who this God is, this God who saves us, the God who demands that we worship Him with all our lives. We're going to be reminded of this God who rescued us out of our slavery of sin. And so, no matter what situation you're in, let us turn back to God who is concerned for us and is working out His plan, even when we don't feel like that's happening. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this picture of just total bleakness for the people of God that we read here in chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus. Thank you for this picture that, as hopeless as the situation is for the Israelites, that you show us that there is another reality going on at the same time. That your plan is working as it should. Nothing has gotten in your way that you do indeed care, you have concern, you have compassion to those who are crying out in their suffering, in their unjust unjust oppression. And so, Father, Lord, we, we pray that you would help, you would strengthen us. For some of us, we might be suffering right now. May you remind us of this truth to cling on to your promises. For others of us who are not suffering, Lord, will you build us up so that when the time of suffering comes, we might be ready to know that behind the scenes you are working to care for us, to bring us into your kingdom. And so, Father, will you grow us day by day, living this out? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.